Welcome to The Founders. This is the podcast where we dig into the startup stories of some of the most exciting and innovative businesses by speaking to the founders themselves. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And in this episode, we're speaking to one of the UK's most successful hoteliers and the founder of the Pig Hotels, Robin Hudson. In this conversation, what would you say you were most keen to find out about Robin? Um, He's had a really long career in hospitality. And he's, he's gone through multiple different versions of his hotels. He's, he's gone through uh, scaling a version of his hotels and then selling them before starting a new set of hotels. He's been the chairman of Soho House for a little while. But I think the, the biggest thing for me was what it was like during that first, very first stage where he transitioned from um, having a job as a general manager to raising the capital uh, to put into his first hotel, which involved taking a huge, huge financial risk. What did you enjoy? So I actually really enjoyed when he started talking about the million details. So we, we obviously research before each show and have questions, some questions ready, some aren't. A lot of the questions I start asking thereafter weren't ready because I found it so interesting about how he manages to keep the the small details that make an experience feel above and beyond how he does that at scale um, was a, something that was really interesting for me. Is there anything specific from our conversation you think business owners would learn? I think one is interesting. I mean, he was talking about his initial business plan and we have some something in common, I think, with the, our initial business plan not being the best. And maybe you can take away that in order to start a business, it doesn't need to be a hundred percent perfect mm-hmm. and you maybe just need to have the the drive and the a strong initial idea and a strong belief that it will succeed that will kind of carry you through at least that's what i can assume based on the fact that both of our business plans probably weren't up to scratch so maybe Definitely inspiring <laughs> from that point like you don't need to know absolutely everything and he kind of goes into some detail on that around what the first day was like as well. Uh, so I think it's just more about learning to to be brave and trust yourself and just dive in. I think you can learn from Robin. I completely agree. Uh, so this is Robin Hudson, the founder of the Pig Hotels. Enjoy. So Robin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. So you're considered to be one of the UK's most successful hoteliers. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the industry? Well, it was a, a stroke of luck, I suppose, and a little bit of by, uh, by default. Let's say I didn't excel at school, um, and um, perhaps my options were somewhat limited when it came to um, sixth form choices. And uh, suffice to say, I wasn't invited to attend the sixth form at school. So, uh, so that's kind of reduced my options somewhat. At that time, I think my mother was pulling her hair out, really, you know, what to do with this boy. And she came up with the bright idea that because I liked mucking around in the kitchen with her, she was a very good cook, why didn't I go off and uh, become a chef? Which, which was quite brave at the time because chefs weren't the, um, the rock and roll dudes they are today. You know, it was, uh, it was not really um, considered... Uh, to be much of an honourable uh, profession in those days. As it happened, I didn't go off to become a chef, but I looked at the uh, courses and noticed something about hotel management uh, adjacent to the to the chef page. So that's what I did for a couple of years. And at what point during that journey did you decide that you wanted to go from someone who was 
working for someone else and had a had a job whether it was in a kitchen or then into hotels at what point did you want to run your own hotels yeah it was quite a quite a long time afterwards to to be honest after a couple of years of college i i joined a management training scheme with the savoy hotel company um which at the time was considered as good as it gets in 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 london so i joined the management training scheme and sort of went through that their system um, was to pass you through various departments. So you did six months in a restaurant, six months in the bar, and so on and so forth, and move you between um, properties, between hotels. I suppose that all took about five years, and um, I met my wife uh, towards the end of that. Uh, I'd missed out on the sort of traveling bit, if you like, so we decided to try to find a, a job abroad. So we ended up in Bermuda for, for two years. It wasn't, wasn't too shabby, really. And then came back, and I was general manager of really good country house hotel, Tewton Glen, for, for eight years. So it was only after all of that period of time, so I'd probably been in the business, um, I don't know, 15 years or something, you know, learning the ropes, until I got to a point, I think I was about 35 years old, and I thought, you know what, I think I understand how this works and am I going to be employed for the rest of my life or am I going to try and do something else? And starting your own hotel is not the cheapest thing to do. And you're obviously with your, your wife at this time when you decided to uh, establish Hotel Divine. There's a, quite a good story around your fundraising and one that sounds to me quite scary at the time in terms of having to manage that kind of cash. So can you talk us through what that experience was like in terms of that raise and the kind of, what was your thought process at the time? Did it feel like a risk at the time or did you have a huge amount of confidence in your knowledge and experience over the years that you just knew it was going to work or what was going through your head at that point? I decided that this was going to be the route that um, we would go and I sort of came up with a bit of a rough concept which um, which was to... What, what's now well known as a boutique hotel, but certainly wasn't really then, to, to create the idea of a boutique hotel with some good, simple food, which again wasn't really happening in the countryside in those days. It was pretty pretty terrible, over-elaborate food, but executed badly. So that we, we, we had this sort of concept of a, of a townhouse hotel, if you like, in, in a provincial town or city uh, with very good, simple food. And, you know, perhaps to disrupt some of the preconceived ideas about those provincial hotels, which, as I say, were pretty, pretty dull at the time. So the concept was there. But as you rightly say, um, we didn't have any money. So, you know, I had two young sons at, at that time, all the usual stuff that a young married couple have, the mortgage and the um, we were trying to put them through private education. And so we were paying for school fees and you know, I was reasonably well paid, but not, I wasn't awash with cash by any means. Um, and I had no savings at all. It had all gone into the house and, and, and everything else. And my partner, Gerard, uh, he was in negative equity, so he didn't help much. Um, so to be honest, I, I started to put a plan together and thought, well, I'm going to find a raft of shareholders to help me. I took my half assed business plan, which was, you know, actually pretty pathetic when I think about it. 
Uh, I do still have it somewhere, and it would be quite amusing to uh, to look at it again these days. But anyway, I, I took this plan around to sort of everyone I knew that I considered might have a few pounds to spare. And you realise uh, it's a pretty soul-destroying exercise that, you know, hawking your idea around. And I was doing this sort of in evenings and weekends because I was still holding down my job as uh, general manager at uh, Tewton Glen. And I was anyone I could, I'd ask people and I was uh, trying to sell them the idea. And you kind of kiss a lot of frogs, if you know what I mean, you know, you, before someone actually, you know, signs the check. But I had a couple of school friends and they came in early. Uh, I think my brother came in, he, you know, he had a bit of cash in his pension plan uh, and, you know, slowly started to put some, a few people together. At that time, I was looking to raise about half a million pounds and I knew if I had half a million, I could I could back that up with some bank debt. And 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 um, uh, so I was talking to the bank at the same time. And uh, slowly, slowly, I got I got there. But I did learn one great lesson: is there's, you know, there's a lot of people who talk the talk, and and you know, and and yet there's very few people that kind of sign the check at the end of the day. You know, so it took it took a little while, and I spent a lot of time and effort on on that. And then, of course, when you get to the final, and this was in 1994, and interest rates were running at our first loan for, for from the bank for three quarters of a million was at 12.5% interest. And, you know, these days we talk about high interest rates and so on, at, you know, three, four, five percent because, you know, people don't remember those days. But, but yeah, it was 12.5%. I've still got the loan document somewhere. And we were happy to have it. And then, of course, uh, this was Royal Bank of Scotland, who were super helpful. We had a great bank manager who was really, you know, on side. He really got what we were trying to do. But when it came to the sort of credit committee, they wanted uh, some security against the loan. And the only security we had was our house. So Judy, my wife, God bless her, believed in in me and the project and agreed to put the house up as a guarantee for the business which was a very brave move on on her part. And had it gone in a slightly different direction, it might have ended rather badly, to be honest. Well, I did want to ask, because that's you'd borrowed 500000 from family and friends and then borrowed 750000 from the bank using your own home as collateral. Was that not absolutely terrifying? Um, yeah, I mean, we were busy refurbishing this hotel and I think that was occupying... I didn't really have any time to stop and think about it. So it was, I was blinded, you know, like a fool really, to really what we were doing perhaps. And I didn't stop to think. And by the time we got to the day of opening, um, we'd absolutely spent all the cash, you know, with the builders and fitting it out and all this stuff. And it was only at that moment, literally the sort of day before we opened, you know, I just thought to myself, wow, if this goes tits up now and I haven't sold a cup of coffee yet, we're really in it. So it was that moment. And then we opened the next day and fortunately a few people came in for lunch and, um, you know, so we we felt a little better about it. But um, That must have been a good feeling seeing people sat at the tables. Yeah, really, we were, we were overexcited. We were really useless at what we were doing though because we, <laughs> we were called Hotel de Van, but... We hadn't really factored in enough money to fill the wine cellar with wine. 
Um, and so uh, my partner, who was the wine half of the equation, I gave him a budget <laughs> of £10,000 to fill the wine cellar, which, I mean, is just pathetic. I mean, you know, that it's just nothing, you know. And so he bought a load of wine and we, you know, we blagged a load of wine from suppliers who sort of gave us a few cases as well as, you know, supplying some and so on and so forth. But the, the wine list still looked crap. So we both had a few odd bottles in our kind of under our stairs in, in our houses. We both put these wines into the mix to pad out the wine list because it didn't really matter how many bottles, just so long as it looked a bit better than, you know, what, what we had there. But we were so rubbish at really putting the thing together. We were pricing the wine at less than it would cost retail <laughs> to buy. And so one of my favourite wines in the world is something called Chateau Pichon Lalande, which is a, it was a, which is a second growth claret. And I had three bottles of 1982, which is a vintage of the century. You know, just an amazing bottle of wine. It's like a hundred points uh, wine. Uh, today it would be, pff, I don't know, two thousand pounds a bottle or something. We put these three bottles of on, and I was I was horrified that they'd all been sold by the end of the week, the first week. <laughs> but it was because they were on for less than you could buy them retail. And people all thought we were doing, you know, what a great thing we were doing because the, the wine was so cheap and, you know, all the, so maybe it helped us in the long run. It <laughs> yeah, pretty, got definitely word of mouth, yeah. It was pretty gutting to begin with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've got a friend of ours that works in sort of different form of hospitality and coffee shops and he's done quite well with it now, but he, he's, when he was giving advice to some other people that were setting up, all his advice was just buy more spoons. <laughs> that, was, that was what I said to uh, So it's funny. I was interested in when you were pitching your initial plan to friends and family and to the bank, did you know roughly how they were going to get their money back and what it could potentially sell for? How were you pitching how people were going to get their money back out to them? That part of the business plan was even sketchier than the rest, really. But um, there was a lot of goodwill. I think we only vaguely in the business plan, we said, you know, if this is a success, the first one was in Winchester, if this is a success, then maybe we'll do some more. So that was kind of a vague nod to there may be some growth out of this. And we suggested that in the fullness of time, uh, there could be a trade sale of either the single unit or, uh, you know, or a group of units. To be honest, it, you know, it wouldn't stand up in today's market as a um, as an investment document. Let's put it that way. Fortunately, we had a few the biggest chunks of cash that we got in came from some high net worth individuals who I don't think were, you know, it wasn't it wasn't their last sort of hundred thousand to invest, if you know what I mean. So that they, you know, they were fairly relaxed about that. Um, we also, as a mechanism to ensure that Gerard and I maintained the majority stake, we split their investment between loan notes that had a, an interest coupon with them and share equity. So the idea was that they would get some return on an ongoing basis through their loan notes and the upside eventually would be through their, their, their shares, which actually... That's exactly what happened in the you know after ten years. Yeah, which sort of brings me on to the hotel divan later sold for sixty six million. So 
I'm assuming all of your your friends and family, and I'm assuming especially your wife, was very happy about the the risk taken there. When we've spoken to people that have sold and, and started new, and one of the things that they say is that they would never really do it until they feel completely finished and that they are absolutely ready to move on to the next chapter and there's a next thing to do. Was your drive to sell similar or did you know what, what you wanted to do next or did you just want to kind of have some time uh, time away and maybe recapture that travel side back? Yeah, I think to be honest, we were building the the um, you know the little group quite quite nicely. We'd got to seven units and we certainly didn't make overt noises that we wanted to sell the business, but we'd had a couple of little sniffs and, and you know approaches, a couple of um, trade buyers, and you know the first couple were kind of flirting with us. Really, um, we had this uh, approach by a company called MWB who had already purchased Malmaison. So, I mean, weirdly, Mal was started in exactly the same year as us, north of the border, by Ken McCulloch. And Ken and I didn't know each other at that time, but he was doing something very similar, really, in Scotland to what what we were doing in the south. Uh, So MWB had purchased Mal, I think, a couple of years before. And, you know, you could understand the logic of putting both businesses together. It was a good sort of bed match, really, for us to, to go into that stable. And they, you know, they came up with a really robust offer that didn't require any earn out or anything tricky for us. And as it was 10 years to the day that we, we did the deal. And uh, like I say, we, we, we opened seven hotels in that, in that time. We'd had a brilliant run of it. And when you get to that sort of size of company, when you've started in a real sort of mom and pop way and you've grown it to that inevitably you have to do things just slightly differently when you're at that scale and i think if i'm any good at doing anything it's running a small business rather than running a super large business i feel much more comfortable in the the early stages of growth if you like so yeah uh, it was a as they say uh, an offer we couldn't understand so we um we sold and yeah everyone was very happy and and for the first time in my my career, I had a couple of quid in the bank. You you mentioned there that you like operating almost at the more of a starter or smaller stage than you do when it's a much more a much larger and scaled up business. What is it about those stages when the business is smaller that you enjoy more or feel that you are better suited to operating? I think I'm a bit of a um, jack of all trades, a bit of a multitasker, and that sort of suits that smaller structure uh, rather better. And I think you can influence things with sort of weight of personality that perhaps you you can't when something is is that much larger and that much more more spread. And we still even you know the pig today. I mean, it's you know we employ a thousand people at the pig, but we still run it to be honest like a small business. That's the way I think of it. Uh, you know, I think of each pig as an individual business in its own right and I think of it how it sits within that particular community and and so on yes of course we we have to think about the bigger picture particularly now we've got you know institutional uh, investors on board and and so we have to adapt uh, what we do but in terms of how we present ourselves to the public you know I think there's the value of 
an analog experience is going to become ever more valuable in a world that you know is so detached from reality so it was mwb did they so they made it quite an easy process what was the selling process like was it an emotional exit to sort of say goodbye to something that you'd been doing for 10 years did it take a long time to to come to fruition yeah no i mean i think i was certainly getting to the point of being ready for that that transition and i knew we'd built up some value and and you know to be perfectly frank i i, I quite wanted to realize some of that but because we run these businesses in the way I've just described, they are, it sounds corny, but they are like extended family. And we employ lots of youngsters in the business. Um, and Judy always says, you know, they see us as mum and dad, you know, they like to see mum and dad coming around, uh, you know, to the, to the properties. And, and it's true to an extent, you know, and, and we have seen many, many of them through all sorts of twists and turns in their lives, their careers. And so, Yes, it is more. It's more than selling a engineering business that's I don't know that's manufacturing nuts and bolts or something. You know, it's a very people orientated business, and so we do feel super close. And also, Judy and I do all the the interiors and the development and everything. You know, and every even now, every picture that hangs on the wall in any pig we have chosen, she still buys every last tiny sort of vintage detail for the properties and we buy every stick of furniture and you know so on and so forth so it's a very very personal business and atmosphere for us after that and after the sale went through um what did you do straight after that and how long also was it before you went on to your next sort of role because i believe you were the chairman of uh, soho house for for a period of time well the first thing i did do you remember that um, those bottles of 1982 pichon la that i told you about <laughs> yeah <laughs> i went and bought a case of that <laughs> <laughs> excellent uh, uh no joking apart the um i had been a non-exec director with uh with soho house since uh, 1995 I didn't really know what I was going to do after after uh, Hotel Devan. I didn't, you know, I was still fairly fairly young. Um, I think I was about fifty. I had no sort of idea at that point. I thought I'd just take some time to decide what was next, really. But Nick Jones, the the founder of Soho House, said to me, "Look, uh, before you do anything else, why don't you give us some more time and become chairman?" So we were expanding in America at the time. And so Nick and I had a huge amount of fun going back and forth to America every month. Uh, I, I did the um, couple of deals in LA and Miami. We tried to do something in Chicago. We were buzzing around there, having a, a lot of fun, something very different from what I, what I was doing, but, but uh, no, good stuff. That does sound extremely exciting, to be honest. That sort of lifestyle is sounds very, very attractive. Um, why drop all of that to go back into operating hotels? What, where did that come from? Well, I mean, Soho House was expanding so rapidly, we were continually refinancing and trying to find new sources of cash and all the rest of it. And in 2007, I guess it was, we sold the majority stake to Richard Kering. And in doing so, I sort of sold myself out, out, out of a job, really. But at, at around the same time, I got a call from Jim Ratcliffe from Ineos. His kids and my kids had gone to the same school in Southampton. So I knew him vaguely. And as you know, he's one of the wealthiest guys in the country. And he had started this project of a 
country house hotel in the New Forest, which is now Limewood, but was then something called Park Hill. And I got the call from him. Uh, he said, look, uh, the budget has more than doubled. We're not finished yet. I don't think we know how to open this thing. Can you come and give us a hand? It was very good timing for me because I was just finishing with Soho House. And I went and had a look and, you know, there was lots to do. And so I just said to Jim, I suggest you make me chairman of this business. I put my arms around it and get it, get it opened. And so we, that's what we did. And taking that on, I mean, it sounds, it sound, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds more that you saw something that you could provide all of your knowledge and expertise and help with to get off the ground as opposed to you decided you wanted to go back into an industry that you, you'd already had a lot of success in. Um, was, was that what it felt like? Did you feel like you were basically wanted to get this thing off the ground and maybe back off? Or what, what was the thinking there? Yeah, that's exactly it. I don't know. I thought maybe I'd end up as a some sort of non-exec director or something or other there. Um, but I just thought, oh, let's get it open. That's quite fun to do an opening. I knew the New Forest very, very well because, uh, you know, I'd been a general manager down at Chewton Glen for, for years. Um, so it was my home patch. And, you know, it was an interesting building, no expense spared, not always in the wisest way, but, you know, they'd certainly thrown a lot of cash at it. So there was no, you know, the quality of, of what had been built was was outstanding. It's not straightforward just to open a country, you know, if you don't have the, the knowledge, the intimate knowledge of, the, uh, of a business like that, just to open a big old pile in the middle of a field somewhere doesn't guarantee success you know no matter how good the quality of the brickwork is you know it's it's about how you position that and you know I always talk about the million details it's about how you how you decide on those million details and 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 you know every every one of those helps form helps create the offering you know and so it's it's the it's the aggregate of all those of all those minute decisions you know and those million decisions, what do they encompass? Is that even all the way down to how staff would treat customers, for example, or what happens when you walk through a room? Or Yeah, so um, I put the team together and so how the team were formed, what they looked like, you know, I mean, what not what they looked like, uniforms and the training, the attitude. There's a big piece of work around all of that. And, you know, I'm a great believer that you inform much of how staff respond by how you are with them and so you know getting in amongst them and that's why I say you know I quite like the the early stages of something I love an opening because you can get in the trenches with the team and and you can give them the right sort of attitude and enthusiasm by sort of osmosis you know by by just being there with them really and so that piece is a very very big piece of what we do and then everything from choosing the right pepper mill to the I mean, we renamed the uh, the property. It was called Park Hill. Um, I thought that sounded like a block of flats in Croydon. So we um, changed the name and, you know, all the positioning of the marketing material and the, everything from the logo to the, I mean, everything. The toweling, the linen, the, yeah. So I completely agree. And I think we've done our own version of that. And I think often we just refer to it as what is the business's reputation and what is that reputation made up of? And it is a culmination of all of the small decisions, the small piece of communication, the extra things that you aren't asked to do that you just do anyway. Um, they're the things that make the difference. How do you scale that? Because 
taking all of that from, say, just your brain and putting it into a team is one thing, but then getting that team to then teach other team members and make sure that that is consistently adhered to over time. How do you achieve that at scale across multiple hotels? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've done, certainly with the pigs, is that I put in place quite a few team members that had worked with us before, so they kind of knew the style and, and particularly the attitude, that, that sort of can-do attitude and and a very um, level style so that staff members talk to guests on a level, not a subservient level, not a superior level, you know, just just on a straightforward one-to-one. So, so actually sort of when you, uh, I mean, of course we have training schemes and we put people through all sorts of you know, structured stuff as well. But I absolutely believe that training by example is the most effective to get, you know, to get the right attitude through a team. And across all of the pig hotels, would you consider all the hotels in your collection a success or are they are there some that are different levels of success to others, some that maybe you think could be better? Where do you, where do you see the hotels in, in the collection? I'm pretty proud of the whole lot, to be honest. There are some that, by virtue of how they're physically structured, you know, some of them might have a a better mix of rooms or something. So financially, they would be uh, more successful than others. Some have a few more bedrooms and, and, you know, a lower cost base or whatever. And so financially, it's very easy to measure that. I don't think that's what you're asking. Um, So... From a guest satisfaction point of view, from uh, from a, a, some sort of customer survey uh, measurement or however you want to do that, um, I think hotels are living things and they go through, they morph through different sort of periods in their lives. You can't say, you two can't say what you did last week is going to be exactly the same as what you do next week. And one might be better, one week might be better than another. And that's because you two are individuals and that's what you do. Where you've got 100 individuals in a, in a hotel, it is a lot of moving parts. And we have good days and we have, you know, we have not so good days. Fortunately, the good days outweigh the not so good days. And so we don't have, I don't think we have really deep troughs. But sometimes you can get just the wrong mix of people on a shift together and it doesn't gel quite as well as you know as as the next day so i also believe that the the hotel director of each property will recruit to an extent in their same image so if you've got a quieter hotel director they will often recruit a quieter type of individual in their team members and sometimes we step in and and say hang on this team is lacking a bit of pizzazz, lacking a bit of spark, uh, and we can we can transfer people in and out. And you know, I mean, we, we work with lots of young people who who are relatively mobile, so we can, you know, we can sometimes move people about. So we've we've absolutely done that before, where perhaps just the mix, not that anyone's a particularly bad individual, but sometimes the mix of those individuals. You know, I mean, it's like running a football team isn't it you know sometimes it's it's the it's the mix of 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 people on the field that that make the team you know i completely agree and i'm drawing a lot of parallels between what you're saying and and also our experience running an agency which is at the end of the day a service business as well we're servicing our clients and it's not that they can 
I mean, they could come into the office, but in outside of that, it's not that they're coming into a physical space, but it's almost the creation of an experience that they're that they're having and how they remember us as an agency. And again, the the million details, like like you've you've both mentioned, um, and I, I completely understand the idea of having the the correct mix of people, even when you're not kind of entertaining customers, even just amongst themselves to to produce. Uh, a good positive attitude and and a motivated team as well. I think having that mix is is so important as well. Is it something that you look for in your hiring process? Is that something that you've built into that your hiring team to look for these specific things or specific traits? Yeah, I mean, we've always talked about we hire on attitude and personality. Very often we can teach technical skills. I mean, according to departmental needs but um, obviously you wouldn't you wouldn't hire a head chef just on personality but god forbid <laughs> but um, but certainly you know a lot of the service staff I mean these days the technical requirements of a waiter or or waitress it's a fairly low technical requirement in in this day and age you know that you don't have a lot of table side Geridon, technical Geridon, people aren't filleting fish in front of you and all that sort of thing generally these days. So the technical requirement is is relatively low, but most people judge their service by how engaged, how knowledgeable, you know, how informed, how friendly, how personable, how smiley. That's what you want out of someone that is serving at your table and someone that's interested and, and generally has a you know, has a feeling for hospitality. So that sort of stuff is is often more difficult to train in. You know, you can train in the technical stuff, but, you know, if somebody really hates people, it's quite difficult to turn them into a, you know, a really fantastic engaged waiter or receptionist or something, you know. I wanted to ask, obviously, with Hotel de Van, there was the sale, there was the end point, almost of that chapter for you. Is there a plan for the pig hotels? Is it something that you... Um, so you're running for way into the future. Is it something that you've planned a sale for, or is it? What, what, what is there an endpoint for you? Yeah, I mean, we've had a um, a change in the shareholders in structure earlier last year. So we we sold the majority stake to um, a specialist uh, hospitality private equity company, KSL, who are proven to be you know great partners. They you know they have an appetite for growth and uh, really have been tremendously you know supportive of, of of what we've done so far. So we've already morphed from that original uh, structure that we had uh, into something rather different. And you know I'm 66 years old. You know I won't be doing this when I'm you know I don't know. 80 years old because it's a full-on role and uh, you know I'm actually trying to allow our next generation of managers and, and directors to come up through to take a bit you know to do a bit more of the heavy lifting frankly so that's that's already happening and you know I, I love the idea that I still have a, a, a very meaningful stake within the business and uh, I'm still absolutely engaged on a day-to-day basis but I'm trying to I am trying to get a bit more balance into my personal life so that Judy and, and I can, you know, can enjoy some of the other things. We have two grandchildren for now, for a start. We've definitely done our hours over the last um, 40 years or whatever it is. So to answer your question, I, I'm not even sure what the final end game is, to be honest. 
as I say, we, we've taken that first step last year and uh, we'll see, but we've um, just about to exchange contracts on, on another property there. So we're still well and truly at it. I had lunch with someone today who is talking to us about us potentially taking over his hotel. And so, so we've, you know, we, we've got lots going on. And with the, uh, the hopefully newfound extra, extra time that you might have, Judy doesn't fancy the uh, long-distance motorcycle rides. Not a fan of those. Or <laughs> she hates the motorcycles. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah. In fact, um, yeah, we did some sort of slightly roughy, toughy things, you know, in the past across Africa and all that sort of thing. And I don't bounce quite as well as I as, <laughs> as I did uh, twenty years ago. So, so I'm not sure how many more of those I'll be doing. Throughout your career, when you think back up to date, what defining moments could you pick out that you think maybe gave you the, the nudges in the direction that you've sort of ended up going in? Are there any big moments that stick out to you? Uh, crikey. Um, obviously, I talked about the putting the house up as a, as a guarantee for the business. That was a big thing. When we first opened Hotel Devan, at that time, there was a very influential uh, restaurant critic called Jonathan Meads, who used to write for the Times magazine. And, uh, you know, he was more influential than Giles Corrin is or, or, you know, I mean, but, but of, the, of the same ilk. And he visited us a month after we opened, really said that, you know, this is the way forward for hotels in, in this country and these guys have got it absolutely right. And it probably was the most important piece of press and we've had a lot um, that we've ever had. Uh, because he was a very, very well-trusted uh, restaurant critic and very knowledgeable about food and and hotels and travel and restaurant, and and it, he he pitched it just right. He didn't say we were you know the best thing since sliced bread. What he said was, you know, this is the way for the mid market to go, and it's pretty special. And and because he'd said that, a lot of other uh, journalists followed, and yeah, that was a that was a great defining moment. Conversely, and I know this was, well, I could take a guess potentially, but you would have been quite far along in, in your journey at this point. But what would you just say is was your hardest day? My guess was potentially lockdown, uh, given the impact that that will have had on the hospitality industry in general. Yeah, and no, I, think, I think you probably guessed right. I mean, there are, there are individual moments that, um, you know, I recall that over the years that have been, difficult and there was a day when um you know one of our waitresses uh, was killed in a, a road accident that sort of thing that you know is pretty pretty hard for a close-knit team to get over uh, and i think affected everyone for quite a long time obviously um the covid thing was yeah it was it was scary to start with um so between the pig and limewood and I look after the uh, Limewood sister in the Alps, uh, Portetta. Between those, all of those hotels, we were in, at the time we employed about 1,100 people. We had uh, the Pig at Harlem Bay was just about to open, so it was due to open in the April, and we got locked down in the March. So we'd recruited people down there that hadn't really started work for us, but they were in that no man's land between having left their previous employer and not started properly with us. And, you know, that was a very long weekend when, you know, I think we were told to lock down on the Friday and 
I think we were allowed to, or Thursday was it, and we were allowed to accommodate guests over the Saturday night. So that was a really weird situation where, you know, guests were in our, in the hotels and, but there was obviously the only thing being talked about was lockdown. And then we didn't know that we'd got government support and, you know, in, in the form of furlough until the Tuesday. So that felt like a bloody long weekend, to be honest, you know, because kind of working out, you know, I mean, had the support not come through, I mean, yeah, it might have been quite a quite a different story. Um, and then, you know, it was <laughs> it was two years that just just kept giving yeah, the twists and turns of what you could do, can't do, opening up, shutting down, restrictions, you know, and so on and so forth. It just went on and on and on. And during that time, I was pretty active uh, talking to government um, along with uh, a few others, trying to help them make the the right decisions about you know whether it was I don't know distancing number of people in a you know we had all sorts of crazy you know the two meter rule the one and a half meter rule the the mask the no mask the you know I mean it was it was a minefield to keep up with but we um, we actually opened we finally opened the Pickett Harling Bay in Cornwall in the middle of 2020 once we were allowed to open up for a few brief months then we got shut down again and then we opened another hotel pig in the south downs in 21 so actually during that period we opened we opened two hotels so um so we ended up the whole kind of covid period with more people than we started with so there aren't too many companies that can say that no they're not they're definitely not and what would you say is one of the biggest lessons you've learned uh, over your career that you could pass on to someone who was interested in opening their own hotel or, or similar uh, hospitality establishment? Yeah, I, you know, I think, I think really, you know, getting inside the heads of, of people, and you know, I'm talking about your team members and, and your guests. So it might be just another day at the hotel for, for me, but for, for the guests, everyone's there for a, for a reason, for all sorts of different reasons. For, for people coming through the through your doors, trying to read what that occasion is. People might, you know, be there for their last supper with someone who's ill, or they might be there for a wake, or they might be, you know, whatever the reason is, they're there for a, an occasion very often, and trying to read read what that occasion is and adapt your level of service is. Uh, is a really important one, um, and equally the team. It's all too easy to forget the team. Uh, you know, have good days, bad days, and and so on. And and sometimes the two minutes that I spend talking to one of the team members might be the most important two minutes of of their day. And it's only two minutes of my time. And but perhaps it makes a difference be- between them feeling good, bad, acknowledged, um, or, or whatever. So I think really, you know, trying to trying to get under the skin of, of guests and staff, really, um, to, to understand what's going on in their heads uh, is super important. Well, Robin, thank you so much for uh, coming onto the podcast. Is there anywhere that people can follow the, the pig uh, on Instagram that you would like to, or, or anywhere, any platforms like that that people could look up? I mean, obviously, the um, the website is thepighotel.com and uh, all the, you know, the Instagram and Twitter and so on, um, yeah, all things that I don't really understand, but there we go. It's... Um, 
but no, Instagram, there's quite, there's quite a lot of activity on there. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you very much indeed. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Founders. If you liked the content in this podcast, you can get new content from a new founder every week by following us on all podcast apps. 